This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a little bit since you've heard my voice. I'm now an intern at Northwestern, no longer at Rush. I'm still there in spirit, though. They're doing a great job. I've listened to their most recent episode, and I'm excited to reconnect with them and do something with them soon. But what I've been doing in the background is getting a team ready here at Northwestern, and I'm really excited to introduce Lauren Smith. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here and to be joining Kevin and this great team on the podcast. A little bit about me. I'm a fourth-year med student at Northwestern, applying into internal medicine for this upcoming season. I grew up in Michigan originally, went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, and now I am in Chicago and loving it. Outside of medicine, I have been enjoying spending time with my two new kittens who I just adopted and reading. It's also real fun. What are they doing? Beans and miso. Beans and miso. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a little trend there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Beans and food. We want to introduce our discussants. Yeah. So today we have two other fourth-year med students, my wonderful colleagues, Kelly and Caroline, here discuss the case with us. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Kelly, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah, I'm Kelly. I'm also a fourth-year medical student here at Northwestern, originally from the suburbs of Chicago, and I went to undergrad at Emory in Atlanta, interested in applying into IM this season as well, be cardiology down the line. And outside of medicine, I am a longtime dancer, so I do that in the city a bit, and I also love to read fiction. Look at some book recs later. Yeah. <laughs> Which city are you from? Hawthorne Woods. It's getting near Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm Caroline. I'm also a fourth-year student here, also applying to internal medicine. I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. I went to Yale for undergrad. And outside of medicine, I am a harpist, and I also really like to crochet. And I was pleasantly surprised when we were getting set up because I didn't know Caroline was going to be discussing today. <laughs> I just spent my first month as an intern with Caroline as our medical student on our leukemia and lymphoma service. So I'm really excited to have her on as a discussion. Hope I don't disappoint. <laughs> Can't wait to hear your reasoning. All right. Should we get started? Yeah, let's, let's kick things off. All right. So, we'll start off with our first Emily Clark here. So, the patient is a 35-year-old man who presents to the emergency room with three weeks of rectal pain and bright red blood for rectum after recent travel on a cruise ship in Europe. So, we'll stop there. What are your initial, initial thoughts? How are you thinking about this patient? So I think just broadly speaking, I, after I see this travel history, I'm always concerned about something infectious, maybe like a, some kind of colitis causing blood in the rectum. I think there's also malignant causes of this, like rectal cancer, and then some pretty common causes like hemorrhoids or anal fissures that may be from trauma. Yeah, I definitely want to know more about the circumstances that this happened. So if he's you know, been feeling really constipated or if he's had this before, kind of where he went on this cruise ship, if anybody else around him is sick as well. Yeah, I like it. So keeping the differential real broad at the moment and your infections, maybe maybe other structural things that you're thinking about. I think that's great. 
I think you're covering all the major buckets. How are you going to investigate the particular buckets next? What kind of things are you going to be looking for in the history? What questions are you going to use to kind of guide your thinking going forward? Yeah, so I think in distinguishing some of the infectious causes, it's always good to ask about fevers or chills. Like Caroline was saying, learning a little bit more about where he traveled, maybe what foods he ate, if anyone around him has been sick. And then for malignancy, thinking a little bit about recent weight loss, maybe risk factor in terms of the sexual history. Yeah, I think I also want to know a little bit more about the characteristics of the rectal pain. Just is it, you know, all the time? Is it when he's just sitting down? Is it just when he's having bowel movements, things like that? Because I think that certain characteristics of the rectal pain would point us more in one direction than another. Yeah. What about the patient's age? Does that pointing towards or away from anything in particular? Is that helpful or not helpful? I think we don't think about malignancy quite as often in a patient who's 35. If this was a 70-year-old patient, that might be higher on the differential. That's not to say that we don't see patients with colorectal cancer or anal cancer in, in this age population, but it's maybe not as high on the differentials it'd be for somebody who was older. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Awesome. What infectious things do you need to be thinking about with the cruise ship in Europe? Well, I think cruises and buffets from the sketch in general <laughs> maybe think about norovirus. And then there's a lot of bacterial causes as well, like E. coli, Shigella, Campylobacter, all can cause blood in the stool. And it was three weeks, too. Does that, the symptoms have been going on for, for weeks rather than months rather than days, does that change your infectious thinking? Probably that's less likely to be something viral if it's been three weeks. If it was a couple of days, that might be more likely, but I'd, I would be less concerned for something like neurovirus if it was you know almost a month of, of rectal pain sure. or bleeding. Yeah, I think those are all great things to be thinking of at the moment. I think we should go to the next step one. Yeah. All right. So during his travels, he noticed diarrhea Upon returning to the United States, he began having rectal pain and bleeding for three weeks. He does have a history of external hemorrhoids, but this feels different. Tylenol and preparation age didn't help him. The pain is burning. He feels his rectum is swollen, irritated. With bowel movements, he notices that blood drips into the toilet bowl. There's blood on the toilet paper, coating the stool, and also mixed into the stool with streaks. The patient endorses tenesmus. He is worse at night and now is preventing him from working. He did see his primary care provider who did an exam and thought that his symptoms were due to his hemorrhoids, which were seen on exam at the time. He has not been having any fevers, chills, coughs, dyspnea, and chest pain, or any urinary symptom. He's tolerating PO. Got a little layer to the story now. Got some pertinent negatives, I'd say. How does this shift your thinking? I think without infectious systems, I'm less concerned for something like a bacterial infection. So Shigella usually has, you know, high fevers, so that would probably be lower on the differential. I think if it comes after he has diarrhea, that I'm, you know, hemorrhoids usually come from a lot of straining. So it's if it's after somebody's had diarrhea, I may be less concerned for that versus if they've been constipated to start with. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the the blood is both mixed into the stool and dripping it. Makes me wonder if there's maybe two sources of bleeding, maybe something a little bit further up from the anus and also something like his external hemorrhoids that could be contributing to the dripping blood. I think that's a good thing to pick up on as a differentiating factor. I think it's also interesting that it's worse at night for him. 
because I feel like a lot of causes of rectal pain that we were thinking of are maybe things that you would feel throughout the day. So I'm wondering if it's either related to position or I know, I know pinworms don't usually, you know, cause this kind of thing, but how those people always have more itching at night. So thinking about something that might be more affecting people nocturnally versus during the day. You know, bug or scotch tape. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we're ready for some more. Yeah. So here's some of your travel review system. No swimming in freshwater lakes. No wrong fish or wrong meat ingestion on his trip. He doesn't have travel partners, but they do not have any of these similar symptoms. No family history of IBD or colon cancer. And the patient is sexually active with one male partner, including unprotected anoreceptive sex. Yeah, I think this history is making it infectious causes even lower on my differential, especially the fact that the people he was traveling with haven't been affected. I think I've got more details about the sexual activity, if he's having any other kinds of symptoms, if he's noticed any other discharges, any other smells, maybe the last time that they were sexually active, things like that as well. And maybe clarification about the sexual history. Yeah, and then maybe if, if this male partner is having similar symptoms and things like that. I think that's a good, important distinction to make. And then I think also, like, important, we have this piece of information, and I feel like we put these patients into a category that our frames are thinking, but they're also susceptible to every other cause of symptoms outside of STI-related symptoms that everyone else is susceptible to. So knowing that, it sounds like you guys want to qualify a little bit of this history. Sounds like maybe not infectious. Maybe we need to expand and think about other things. How do you guys frame this problem so far? Yeah, so, so far it seems to be like a 35-year-old male coming in with three weeks of rectal pain as well as both dripping blood from the anus and blood mix into this stool following a, a cruise in Europe. In terms of our broad, I was also experiencing some urgency and some nighttime symptoms as well. So, so far, it seems like we're thinking maybe malignancy versus STI-related symptoms are highest, lower down to be infectious causes or colon cancer, given his age and lack of family history, and IBD a little bit lower as well, given the lack of family history. What IBD does this make you think of? Probably ulcerative colitis, given the blood in the stool. Right. Any additions you want to make to that, I think that pretty much covered it. All right. So some vitals. The patient's blood pressure is 135 over 88. Pulse is 78. He has asemorrhoidal. Respiratory rate is 18. He's sat 97%. Room air. In general, he's well appearing and no acute distress. His mucous membranes are moist. His flare are enteric. His regular rate and rhythm. Non-labored breathing. His abdomen is soft, mildly distended without ascendies. Non-tender to palpation all quadrants. No rebound or guarded and no masses. On rectal exam, there's an external hemorrhoid at 6 o'clock. No visible fissures. It's tender. No palpable masses. There is blood seen on the exam, but no validum. And he has no lower extremity. So what do you make of this exam? His vitals are all pretty much normal. I mean, his blood pressure is maybe on the higher side with the newer guidelines, but not so high that I'd be too concerned. You know, he's well-appearing. There doesn't seem to be anything grossly wrong with, you know, like his mucous membranes or his heart or his lungs. He does have mild distension of the of the abdomen, but it's non-tender. And then he does have this external hemorrhoid, so that's 
that definitely kind of puts hemorrhoids maybe a little bit higher. Like you were saying that maybe there's more than one thing contributing to the blood. So that could be one thing, but no visible fissures. So that probably pretty much takes that off the differential, but it being tender and still having blood still raises questions for, is there any kind of maybe internal trauma or is there some kind of infection that's maybe not giving him systemic symptoms, but is causing like, I don't know, maybe like a prostatitis or something like that, where it's a little bit more on the ins internal. Talked a little bit about the, the rectal incision in particular, and Caroline, you mentioned, you know, thinking about some inflammation. What is the fact that it's, you know, this exam was tender for the patient, that it was painful? Does that help at all? How do you think about that specific physical exam finding? I think it does help. My differential for I guess tender pain on rectal exam isn't super broad, but I think usually something infectious, I would think to be more tender or getting like acutely irritated from, he didn't have constipation, but something like that. I think of malignancy usually as a more non-tender situation. So I guess that pushes that even further down. Is there anything that you hey. like expect to see on the exam if you know, ulcerative colitis is also on differential, like, is there anything in this exam that you would have expected that's missing, or is there anything that is consistent with that of any differential? Well, I think, when I think of ulcerative colitis, I think it being continuous starting at the rectum, so I would expect to see rectal changes, and then kind of consistent with the abdomen exam, I'd expect to see some higher up as well in the colon. I know in Crohn's disease, you can see things like fistulas and more external findings like that. So it's consistent that we're not seeing those. No, like external colonic or extra GI related findings associated with IBD. Mm -hmm. When I'm reading this, I'm seeing this guy is chilling. He's not sick, which is important. We have time to think, right? And all the other systems seem to be normal, so we're really narrowing down on GI symptoms, particularly the end of it. And I like how you guys are kind of framing everything so far. You're, you seem to be like focusing on particular areas. You're moving things up and down in your differential, but not throwing it out of the door. You're explaining reasons why things are more or less likely, and I think that's amazing. All right, we got some labs for you. Sodium is 139, potassium 4.1, fluoride 100, bicarbs 30, D-line of 12, creatinine 0.84, glucose is 89, AST is mildly elevated at 40, and ALT also mildly elevated at 58. Elk is 101, T-billy 0.5, total protein is 8.3, albumin 4.6, and then CDC's white cone is 8.8, hemoglobin 15.6, and platelets 3.42. Impressed? Unimpressed? I feel reassured still that he's stable, given that CBC is not like briskly bleeding. I think when I see elevated transaminases, I want to make sure I rule out seal bleeds. So I, I think that's reassuring. And then also that white count is normal. So again, supports our thought process that infectious causes is a bit lower. Yeah, I think overall not the most impressive labs. Pretty much everything's normal. ASC, ALT are mildly elevated, but that's, they're not crazy elevated. I mean, 40 and 58 is not one of those things that makes you kind of stop in your tracks and think, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with the liver that we have to fix right now. 
I guess one just like random differential I'll throw on there. I think it's like entamoeba. You can get like a liver cyst, I think. You can also have bloody diarrhea. Where the heck do you get that? Just just that good sketchy story. Compartment. <laughs> That's step two knowledge. Yeah. But where in the world you get it, I don't I'm not sure. I'm like a water problem. Yeah. yeah. Is it entamoeba histolytica or entamoeba? Probably. <laughs> I just remember there's like a, you treat it with metronidazole. I remember the train coming through. Right, yeah. Now we're dealing with parasites. Yeah. <laughs> Anything here helpful? Anything else that's helpful that it's normal? I think the BUN being pretty low, is, we weren't really considering upper GI pleats, but I think that's further evidence. It's lower down the track. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to be thinking about. What kind of things would you be expecting if we were having an upper GI bleed? Oh, I was gonna say, when I think upper GI bleeds, I think of things like ulcers that are bleeding. So I would have expected melana, which they didn't see because it it goes through kind of the digestion. I would have expected, I mean, if he had an acutely bleeding ulcer, I probably would have expected some upper abdominal tenderness as well. And he didn't have that either. I also think we have some nice data here to say, to quantify his bleeding. I think we all agree we're not impressed. Yeah. Probably the best hemoglobin I've seen in a while. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the rest. I know. <laughs> the one other thing that I, you know, I think about too is platelets. Maybe you talked about like infection, inflammation, and looking at the white count from that. And I think platelets can also be helpful in thinking, you know, platelets are an acute phase reactant and so on. I also don't see a huge jump in platelets here, too. Which I think is kind of consistent with Harry Muller with the normal white count as well. And some more? Right on. Okay. So we got some more labs, stool studies. Kelly really wanted the intensity. Yeah, I'm sad to see that. Do you have an idea? Cryptosporidium, we're also negative. ONP and stool culture, negative. Uh, syphilis, antibodies, non reactive. HIV, HCV, HSV, VZV, all negative. And monkeypox is pending. <laughs> Did you expect these things to all be negative? I didn't expect to see monkeypox on there. <laughs> or this, when we were putting this case together, the monkeypox was still pending. It came back negative, so okay. you can cross it out of your differential. We'll talk about it later, but we do have a definitive answer. And I'm pur- purposefully withholding the test that revealed the answer because I want you guys to get there without it. <laughs> Why don't you just talk through the findings? First, kind of, why don't you try to put yourself in the people who were ordering these tests, what they were thinking. Like, that could be helpful. Yeah. So I, I see that they ordered the HIV and the syphilis, and so I'm thinking that they were doing probably work for STIs, and so I noticed that the chlamydia gonorrhea isn't on here, and I know we were talking about things like prostatitis and things like that, which could be, could be caused by the E. coli, but could also be caused by STIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, I have my differential, even though even though he had a normal white count and, and kind of seemed to produce stable, but I would still be concerned for that, especially because it's not on the no listed here yet. Yeah. It's a good test taking. <laughs> <laughs> I just took step two a month ago, guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
What do you think, Nelly? I think the other big bucket we haven't fully explored would be like the ulcerative colitis. Again, we didn't see an elevated white count, but maybe you could send like a CRP here, you said, and then I'm sure there's antibodies out there for them. <laughs> yeah, like what? Oh, PA, so yeah. Check some inflammatory markers. Yeah. And that clues you in more than an autoimmune, IBD related process. Yeah. Ultimately, how do you get to the ulcerative colitis diagnosis? Colonoscopy. Yeah. We need tissue. Mm-hmm. Or colonoscopy. Sending some imaging conclusive, like with that biopsy, all the bulk, or like the feared complication of UC toxic myocolon, right? I don't think we're dealing with that. Lauren, you have anything to add? Just as a like interesting aside that I learned from the world, toxic myocolon, if it is to present in a patient with ulcerative colitis, it more oh, often is actually been presenting symptoms. Oh man. Which I thought it was really interesting. Wow. I don't want to end it so. A good thing to keep on your differential. <laughs> or maybe not this patient, but interesting. But yeah, I think, you know, you all are pulling it into the, like, there's kind of a focus of something going on in the rectum. You're not seeing a lot of other systemic signs of illness. You know, the vitals looked great. Labs looked pretty great. And, and so I think you're you're building a, a differential that that is moving towards the. You ladies are fourth years, well into fourth year now. We're going to push you. You're gonna put your nickel down on final diagnosis. Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> you know, I need to come in your treatment plan. What are you going to do for this guy? What other labs would be abnormal or normal and things like an ulcerative colitis? Yes. I mean. Yeah, besides, the, I guess, the signs of inflammation, right. I'm not sure, and the colonoscopy. <laughs> well, I guess the fact that it's still subacute, he has, like, this travel and sexual history, I think that's in favor of proctitis. Well, I just don't know if that causes, like, the diarrhea. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm getting true. caught on, and... I feel like diarrhea plus, like, bloody diarrhea that's included it would maybe be more consistent with an ulcerative colitis versus a yeah. especially with a normal white count. Yeah. If he didn't have diarrhea, I might be thinking. Yeah, I agree. And then the blood mixed into the stool, yeah. too. Yeah, totally. So I love what you guys are doing. Kelly, you're, without saying, you're adding in the base rate of disease. You're taking a step back. You're seeing this problem for from all the outside perspectives and framing it. With common things being common, you're thinking this, the story sounds like an infectious process. We have some risk factors that are pointing in this direction. But then Caroline brings up that she, her illness script at least for proctitis doesn't include diarrhea, so that's making her question that diagnosis and think about other alternative possibilities. Mm-hmm. So what are you guys gonna do next? This is your patient. Well, I think we definitely want those couple of STI tests, the chlamydia and gonorrhea. And then I think we also want the colonoscopy. If those come back negative. I feel like we wouldn't subject him to a colonoscopy if those came back. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Just trying to do some high value care. (laughs) So chlamydia and gonorrhea. Yay. So he did not get subjected to a colonoscopy. 
Yeah. <laughs> Save them. So, yeah, final diagnosis was infectious proctitis and inurated gonorrhea and chlamydia. And as we mentioned at the time, lucky toxins. Just deal with gonorrhea. Yes, it also. I think we like talking about a lot of exciting things. And I, you know, even having seen the case beforehand, learned things and I'm thinking about things too. I'm like, why was his white cat normal? Trying to think about that more, I guess he just wasn't systemically sick. I don't know. Would have like inflammatory markers been helpful? I don't know. If the white count's normal. I also think high inflammatory markers can be a lot of different things. So even if they are high, that doesn't say that it's definitively ultraclides. They could be high in just an infection. It could be yeah. high for some other reason. And I don't know that it would have totally pushed us. Yeah. yeah. After, after this, they actually did get a CRP, which was elevated. You could. Though, just as you mentioned, Caroline, the typical to make anything up. Hey, that's just word for me. If like CRP is elevated, why is it the white count? Yeah. <laughs> That's that's where I was getting caught is that, and then the the diarrhea, which is maybe not the most typical yeah. symptom for this. But then again, that could also have been you know he's on a cruise and he could just have diarrhea from some yeah. other reason. It doesn't necessarily have to all be due to one thing. Yeah, I mean, and I think that is a really good thing that you all were thinking up on this case is like patients can have multiple things going on, and so this patient with known hemorrhoids now with a new anal rectal complaint. And how do those things fit together, or do they not? So, yeah, I think that's, that's a great thinking. What are your reflections on the case? What are some things you learn? What are you going to take with you? Test taking strategies. What's <laughs> missing? <laughs> if we watch them, we're good testers. <laughs> are we good problems? I think always anchoring is like a difficult issue. So, I, I think when I first heard the first few aliquots, I wrote down a few things, yeah. and one of them wasn't this autoimmune bucket. So I think just pausing really at the start and being really thorough so you don't leave out any things that might end up pretty high in your differential. Love that you said that. I, like, daily we fight with anchoring. We're just by it, so biased that we, we can't avoid it. I think the only thing we can do is acknowledge it. Just take that step back to think an extra second about what else could this be? What am I missing? I think also making sure that you don't always think that all of the symptoms are due to one problem. I mean, a lot of the time they are, and it's good to think about that. But then when most of the pieces fit and then there's one or two things that don't fit, maybe taking a step back and thinking, okay, well, maybe these symptoms over here are due to something else that we have to address. But all of these things over here fit, so we should, we should you know, treat this thing over here. That's mm -hmm. a great point. I think one last thing that I'm learning now that I'm actually doing this is... We need to like do a lot better at factoring in most more likely things. And I feel like in med school, we are learning about all of these obscure things that are great for pathophysiologic teaching and just to talk about, but the reality is that we don't see them that often, but maybe because we're learning about them, they're like in our mind and that's why we're thinking of them. But the reality is that sexually transmitted infection in this guy was for sure, the highest thing on the differential is the most likely thing that someone with these symptoms sensory is, is going to end up having. But what you guys did so well at was continue to ship your differential. You considered other things. You moved them up and down based on what we were giving you. And that's maybe someone, a practicing physician of 20 years is going to hear this and anchor right away on an STI-related infection. 
and then miss those other things. So striking that balance. We have to ask Lauren. Just kind of a teaching point yeah. on period B, localizing the pain really well actually could lead you right towards your, your differential. So I learned this too as I was reviewing the case, but localized perianal pain. You can think of skip trauma, hemorrhoids, like our patient had a perianal abscess or neoplasm. But if you have a patient who has more anal canal pain, which was what this patient was presenting with, we asked him where you feel the pain, and we actually said it feels and that is pretty specific for anal fissures, cancer, for an ulcer from an SCI. So that's helpful. And so if you actually look to the up-to-date algorithm for proctitis and men who have sex with men, of course, you want to rule out all of the other things that you had brought up. But the recommendation actually is to treat them empirically for STIs. And then if they don't improve to continue the whip and hold on to the for example, like you said, or whatever their symptoms are, are leading you towards in that differential. So I thought that was interesting. Very interesting. That brings up like a risk benefit, right? The risk of them having an STI is so high that we're actually just going to treat them. So hopefully the risk of those impacts isn't that great. Do you guys remember how we would treat them? I'm only asking because I just had a patient today with this exact problem. I think chlamydia gonorrhea. I want to say it's septriaxone, and there's one other thing. Maybe like doxy. Yeah. So for patients who I think it's specific to their symptoms as well. So if they are positive for gonorrhea then you would treat with ceftriaxone and you would also give doxycycline for seven days. But if the chlamydia PCR comes back positive, then you actually want to cover for the lymphogranulator. So you want to make sure you're covering for LGB so you actually extend the treatment of doxycycline to three weeks, which is a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about multiplayer. <laughs> I think Lauren has some good teaching on monkeypox, and I just thought on my first case of monkeypox today, and I felt like a, I don't know, I don't know, I have to reflect on it still, but surreal experience. I feel really bad for the patient. He's doing well, but kind of crazy time. Can I take another trip to Costco? <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit about monkeypox. In terms of transmission, the biggest round of transmission is direct contact with other people. So whether this is through infectious sores, scabs, or other bodily fluids, close contact is really the, the most common way for, for transmission. And indirect contact through fomates is actually something else that happens. So I also just what we needed. I also recently learned the precautions for a patient who's hospitalized with monkeypox are very specific. So there is a sign on the door that reminds you not to shake the linens. So the phonates can be, the contact can be actually so significant just from like shifting it in the hospital bed and moving things around. And so 
You have to be careful when you're performing an exam, too. I did mm -hmm. learn today also, it's really the skin lesions that create the fomites that are causing this. So people with monkeypox don't necessarily have to have skin. Like skin lesions may be acid, which is also something I learned today. So would patients without skin lesions be less contagious? Theoretically, I think, right? Like that's how I kind of reason through it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if they're not having specific, specific lesions, but interestingly, in some cases, beginning May of this year, some patients, while they may not have lesions elsewhere, they can present with proctitis as this patient or only with lesions in the genital or perianal area. So even if there aren't any other visible lesions, it can appear to be more like an STI as well. Mm -hmm. So in terms of signs and symptoms for monkeypox, it's really a systemic illness, so you can get fevers, chills, myalgias, you have this pro-girl period. You can get intense headache, lymphadenopathy, pretty significant lymphadenopathy. It's all fall size lymphadenopathy, yeah. Then the rash is really what happens within one to four days after the fever and can continue up to two to three weeks. Although sometimes the rash can happen without a prodrome. So it can be variable, but the, the rash itself typically starts as two divided milliliter macules and then evolved in papules, fascicles, and then pustules. They're described as well circumscribed, deep-seated, and they often develop vilification. So then they eventually crust over, dry up, and fall off about seven to 14 days after. So there are some complications of monkeypox, but overall people have been doing pretty well. It's from my understanding, a pretty excruciating pain, but people do tend to, to do okay once they get past that initial. Did not think I'd be throwing monkeypox on my differential. <laughs> we did it. I just want to thank both you, Kelly and Caroline, for being the first brave <laughs> to come. So, discuss so eloquently. You guys got there. I think your reasoning was awesome along the way. I'm really excited to have met Lauren through Dr. Henshin, so who will soon be joining us, and I'm excited to have him part of the team also. We have a lot of things we're hoping to do, and I'm looking forward to putting together some more episodes pretty shortly. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. Looking forward to working on this, this podcast and getting some more great cases. And thanks, Kelly and Caroline. Just so, so proud to have the <laughs> here <laughs> Western, and I'm excited for us all to be going into internal. Yeah, <laughs> you guys are with doctors soon. Not so too soon. <laughs> all right, see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.